Listening party on FOTW Radio. Happy Halloween.
The following documentary might contain content that is disturbing for young listeners. Parental guidance is recommended. Film music must supply what actors cannot say. The music can give to an audience their feelings. It must really convey what the word cannot do. But the strange thing about cinema, and this would go for television film, is that no one really knows why music is needed. I would say after a lifetime in it, I could not tell you why. But it is not complete without it. What would the movie Psycho be without his stabbing strings? Or the films of Dario Argento without the music of Goblin? The Exorcist without tubular bells? Or Friday the 13th without its ki 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 ma ma ma? As you heard from Bernard Herrmann there before, that movies are almost nothing without their music. There is one film that was made exceptional by its score, a special film made at a high point in the history of the horror genre. Welcome back to the show. Stephen King is the best-selling author of such books as Carrie and The Shining, both of which were made into old-fashioned movie thrillers. His other horror novels include The Stand and Salem's Lot, which became a TV special. Uh, he has now ventured into an original screenplay entitled Creep Show. There's no joke about someone asking directions how to get to Carnegie Hall and being told, practice, practice. In a new version, if someone asks how to become a successful movie director whose early films are cult triumphs and whose most recent one has been hailed as the hottest film in the country, grossing $8 million in its first five days, you wouldn't expect the answer to be, go to Pittsburgh and stay there. I don't know if I find it necessarily frivolous to just go out and be scared. I don't, really, because I'm looking forward to uh, mm. Creepshow, which is a project that yeah. we're going to do together, and uh, which is scare. Yeah, just it, get in there and try to scare people. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. In 1979, two giants of the horror business came together, writer Stephen King and filmmaker George Romero, along with producer Richard P. Rubenstein. They wanted to make a movie version of King's epic novel, The Stand. But first, they needed to prove to investors that they were in fact a good team. So they came up with the idea of making a tribute to the old EC horror comics of the 1950s that they had loved so much as kids. A light-hearted horror movie designed only to make the audience jump in their seats. Stephen King wrote the script, Richard P. Rubenstein organised the finance, and by July 1981, they were able to start production, setting up in the gymnasium of a local Pittsburgh high school. By November the following year, the movie was complete and out in cinemas, boasting stars like Besley Nielsen and Vivica Linfors, and new stars like Ed Harris and Ted Danson, Creepshow became a well-loved film. But the jewel in Creepshow's crown was in fact the wonderful score composed by John Harrison, who was working as the film's first assistant director. This is the story of how Creepshow's music came about almost by accident, how John was able to weave 
a score out of a single synthesizer, the legendary Prophet 5, along with a grand piano and a small choir. Howie tapped into the mysterious Disarray, the Russian-invented theremin, and a folk song from 19th century Pennsylvania. And it all started with a childhood love of going to the movies. Well, I guess I was always interested in it as a as a kid. Um, growing up in the States, uh, going down to the movie houses where I lived in Pittsburgh, which is where I grew up, um, there was a couple of movie houses right down the street from where I lived, and I was allowed even back in the uh, in the fifties uh, when I was a young when I was a little kid, I was allowed to go by myself, and my brother and I would go down. Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future. And I guess like any kids, I just kind of loved the whole experience of it and loved movies and went all the time. Uh, in school, I was in all the school plays, and then I went to college, and I studied theater arts and so forth, and probably knew by the time I was in my 20s that I wasn't going to make a living in the theater, but that I had always loved film. I was very lucky because in the 70s in Pittsburgh, there was a lot of film activity going on. Uh, there was a public television station called WQED, uh, which was doing a lot of national programming for the major network there, and uh, a lot of it was drama, and I was able to work there. And then in Pittsburgh, George Romero was making all of his movies. And uh, if you wanted to be in the film business, you ultimately crossed paths with George, a wonderful guy and uh, very willing to uh, mentor and help. Besides his love of film, John was also a self-taught musician. As a player, I I, uh, I was self-taught. I never went to music school and never never studied any instrument uh, particularly. Taught myself how to play the piano and the bass. And the music that really spoke to me ultimately was uh, blues and rhythm and blues. You know, uh, James Brown. He was a hugely influential character in my life. Uh, I used to travel to see his band play. And then blues artists like Muddy Waters and uh, Howlin' Wolf and Buddy Guy were hugely influential on me. And then, of course, the the rock bands that came out in the 60s and 70s that influenced all of us, guys like Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and people like that. So I had been playing and singing professionally almost all of my life, and I it's not that I took it for granted, but it was a part of my life that just was on autopilot. I just always did it. Uh, when I went off to college, I made money playing in bands and doing gigs. And then I had an opportunity to go out on the road with uh, a guitarist named Roy Buchanan, a very famous uh, and extremely gifted artist. I was with him for about four years while I was trying to put my own film company together. I was trying to, you know, sort of juggle things, both things at the same time. So for a long time, they were kind of parallel enterprises, if you will. I never set out to be a film composer, but um, in Pittsburgh, when we were all coming up in the independent 
film community that we had there, one never specialized in anything, really, because you had to do a little bit of everything in order to get the job done. So if you wanted to put together a, a small film production, since I played some piano, everybody thought, well, okay, you do the music. Or if the guy who was a pretty good photographer was around, you say, okay, well, you're going to shoot it. And that's how it all kind of came together. Everybody did a little bit of everything. John's first real composing work was on a small feature film called Effects that he made with his partners at the time, Dusty Nelson and Pasquale Buba. The story was about a film crew trying to make a horror film while a killer picks them off one by one. John used a small ensemble of instruments for the soundtrack. A guitar, a flute, a piano, even a saxophone, as well as developing some of his trademark techniques, like running a low bass note through a phasing effect which he would use again in Creepshow. George had heard it. He knew of our work. And when I started working with him, uh, I was actually his first assistant director, but he said, well, look, we need some music, so why don't you do it? It was actually producer Richard P. Rubenstein who suggested that John would be a good first assistant director. At that time, John was working on screenplays for George and Richard's company, Laurel, and his music career was on the back burner. In the case of Creepshow, uh, I had no idea that I would ever be doing any music for him while we were making the movie. But there would be times we'd be sitting around just talking about what would the score sound like? What should we have? It was a very stylized movie, as you know, and was based on George's love of comics. And he and Steve King had put this whole thing together. And visually, it has that style. And the original intention was to score it with library music, especially the library music of the 50s, where the style of the comic books that we were emulating kind of came from. So we acquired all of these library tracks and started listening to them. And George is a master. Even though he's not a musician himself, he actually has an incredible musical sense. And as an editor, he was always able to take two or three tracks uh, in his earlier movies from library scores and uh, cut them together and overlay them and turn them into something entirely new. And that's what we were going to do on Creepshow. But unfortunately, some of the tracks, the fidelity wasn't as good. Creepshow is different stories, so we were trying to come up with a musical identity for each episode in the, in the overall movie. It was very hard to do, and I volunteered that I had... Uh, a very sophisticated synthesizer for the time called the Prophet 5, and I said, look, I can, I can create some interstitial stuff here just to bridge the gap between this piece and that piece, or if we need a little bit of undertone, I can create that, and that's how it started, really. The synthesizer that John is talking about, the Prophet 5, was invented by Sequential Circuits in the late 70s, an American company based on the West Coast. It had a mysterious, eerie sound that became a staple of early 80s music, as you can hear in this track Ghosts by the group Japan. When the room is quiet The daylight almost gone It's 
But it also had a strong association with horror. It had already been used by John Carpenter on his movie Halloween, as well as in his latest scores with Alan Howarth. to the next and it was kind of like well we need a little something here we need a little something there and by the time it was done I scored you know 85% of the movie and uh, then what are we going to do for a theme song well okay so I wrote that and uh, there we were John enlisted the help of friends from Carnegie Mellon University, where he had studied, along with Michael Abelson from the music department, who played some of the grand piano. There was Michelle DiBucci, who was still a student, and took on the task of arranging the choir. Quite by coincidence, she had just learnt about the Desiree, a religious piece of music that, in the words of Christopher Palmer, has haunted composers throughout the ages. Both a melody and a set of lyrics, composers would sometimes use one without the other. Here it is by Hector Berlioz in Symphony Fantastique, using the melody. 
and here it is by Verdi, using just the words. my vocal arrangements, loved the way it sounded when it was spoken like that. And a lot of it's nonsense words. Those are not actually, that isn't really Latin chanting. There's a bit of it. There are a few words here and there. But mostly it's almost vocal improvisation and getting a choir of whatever it was, eight or ten people, to talk, whisper in very exaggerated fashions. Every every word is exaggeratedly articulated and uh, it just sounded good. With the title theme done, there were five distinctive stories in Creepshow that John needed to score, starting first with the gruesome Father's Day. This is the one where we began to realize we were going to want more original music, but at that time we scored a lot of it with the uh, library music that we had. And so I did relatively small amounts of composing for that particular piece. It's a very kind of gothic, back-from-the-dead revenge story. And it had a very classic, almost... 50s hammer film style to it and uh, George chose music that reflected that Um, what I did primarily on that was come up with stings and scares Uh, when the father comes out of the grave when the grave falls on Ed Harris's head when uh, Carrie Nye is uh, killed when uh, uh, the hand comes up out of the out of the grave the first time and kills Vivica Linfers. That's uh, those are all stings and and uh, terror score that I created that was tailor made for that. Um, otherwise, most of that that particular story is scored with uh, the Capitol Music Library. Production music libraries were a way that film companies could quickly score their films without needing to hire a composer. They would contact the library, describe what sort of music they needed, for example, suspense, action, exotic locations, and the library would then send them out a selection of music to listen to. It would then be a case of matching up the right bits of music with suitable scenes in the film. George had originally used the Capitol Music Library for his film Night of the Living Dead, and he naturally had a soft spot for their collection which had also been used in a lot of low-budget sci-fi and horror films from the 1950s. The next story, The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill, would capture some of this atmosphere. What I did for that was create all the sound effects around the meteor and the growth on Geordie Verrill, um, more atmospherics than anything else. Farrell was such a, you know, a kind of an idiot savant, and he was uh, basically uh, 
not a comic character, but a pathetic character in a way. And so we leavened that out with a kind of comic score. So the music had a was very kind of funny. Oh, you done it now, Jordy Verrill. You monkhead. $200 for a broken media, Mr. Verrill. You must be joking. I wouldn't give you two cents. Jordy Verrill, monkhead. Verrill luck's always in. You spell that kind of luck, B-A-D. You know, and I put in the old kind of almost uh, like a theremin type of sound for the meteor and, and the things that were going on, hearkening back again to that old uh, 50s kind of sci-fi score. The theremin that John is talking about was a special electronic instrument, a very early one, taking its name from its Soviet inventor, Lev Terman. It was first used in movies by the Russian composer Shostakovich, way back in 1931, in a movie called Odna. But the theremin would become most well known in the 1950s, when the composer Bernard Herrmann used it in The Day the Earth Stood Still, linking it forever with the sound of alien invaders. The next story, Something to Tide You Over, would musically tap into something much older still, a 19th century minstrel song that many of us will know from watching Warner Brothers cartoons as kids, with Foghorn Leghorn strutting across the screen, whistling it as a melody. Tide You Over was one that I was given very early on because it had a more contemporary feel to it, and George was not happy at all with the uh, the different library tracks that we tried out on it. They all made it feel too retro, too old-fashioned. And he wanted something that was much more contemporary. He also wanted it to have a, a kind of sickly romantic feel to it. So um, I came up with this theme that uh, used uh, uh, the Camp Town Races, which uh, was being whistled throughout the piece. John took this creative cue from the character of Richard, who's whistling it on the beach before bearing Harry up to his head in the sand. Harry, the maiden fair is waiting for her knight in shining corduroy. Come on! And then later again, while he's having a shower, after Harry has been drowned. John completely transformed it into something new. He twisted it around a little bit, made it minor key, uh, made it augmented in a way that was kind of creepy at the same time, had a, had a very kind of dark beauty to it.
we use one library track a little bit for the comfort point scenes when he's driving out to the beach. And what I did there, because it had, again, that kind of romantic, almost soap opery feel to it, and what I could do with that is take elements of the music and weave in the Prophet 5 and kind of seamlessly come out of that library stock music into something that was original. And then, of course, we created a, a very rhythmic editing style for when the ghosts attack, when they actually come back to life and come and get Leslie Nielsen in his house. And I created, uh, we call them the bongs, a very rhythmic, almost death knell kind of bong that would uh, go along with these cuts. And over top of that would be this distorted melody of the Camptown races that Leslie Nielsen had been whistling that then became sort of the, the harbinger of his ultimate demise. <laughs> John's music for the next story, The Crate, that was to be an absolute stunner. Set at the fictional Horlicks University, featured a voracious nightmare in a box, and a sinister plot with all the hallmarks of an Edgar Allan Poe story. The Crate is perhaps the most classical uh, story of them all. It has a very traditional, classical style, and uh, so I wanted to give it a, a piece of music that, that sort of accompanied that. It's about professors in a college town, and they play chess. Uh, they're very sophisticated and uh, erudite, and so the music really, I wanted to reflect that. So it has this kind of faux classical piano sonata type feel to it. At first, Fritz Weaver and uh, the janitor open the crate, and there is the, you know, the stings and scares when Fluffy emerges and kills the janitor. Something shiny. It looks like a couple of emeralds. And then Fritz Weaver goes home and tells Hal Holbrook about it, and Hal Holbrook suddenly sees his opportunity to get rid of the shrew of a wife he has. And so he comes down and starts cleaning up uh, in order to lure his wife to her death. He has to get that monster in its crate moved into under the steps and clean up all the blood and the gore all around there before she gets there, because he's left a note for her to come. So it has a an ascending scale of chordal progression there because, uh, and it also increases in tempo. It starts off very sort of slow and stating the theme. And then the, the closer he gets to knowing she's going to be there and the faster he has to work to clean up the blood, uh, the chord progression starts to ascend and the tempo picks up.
used a, an interval called the Diabolus in Musica, which is an 11th uh, musical interval, which is uh, a particularly unnerving and not pleasant to hear kind of musical interval. And so when we would cut to her, the strings would come in and they would slide within that interval. Crate probably is the most sophisticated and, and it's definitely the most elaborate score in the movie aside from the, uh, the main and end title. final story was the one to really put the creep in Creepshow. They're Creeping Up in You, starring veteran actor E.G. Marshall, contained one of the most shocking endings for kids watching this back in the day. It also had a very distinctive droning soundtrack created by John, where he tapped into one of his favourite films as a kid. You know, I've always loved composers like Varese, John Cage, people like that, and one of the most influential film scores that I've ever heard was the score for Forbidden Planet, which uh, was hugely influential on me, and uh, it, of course, is nothing but tone generation. It's not, you wouldn't even call it sort of musical in any kind of melodic sense, although it's incredibly powerful uh, as a film score. Talking about what we would do for this particular episode, it's got this very sterile environment that E.G. Marshall lives in, and it's uh, it's all about him kind of running his empire. Howard Hughes, like from a citadel where he just controls it all electronically, but the idea is that he he is so disconnected from humanity through technology that he can live in this penthouse and uh, and run his empire. Heads are going to roll. I promise you that. Oh, yes. Hello, that you, White? Furthermore, he wants to live in a hermetically sealed uh, environment that is clean, free of germs and bugs, as he talks about. And so instead of scoring it traditionally, we decided to create the, a sound that would reflect that, which would be nothing but electronics, nothing but sound uh, that that had nothing to do with any kind of traditional instrumentation or melody. And again, the Prophet 5, I was able to generate very strange electronic imagery, if you will, with this that we could continue to ramp up as the piece went on. So it became more and more prevalent, uh, especially with the appearances of any kind of cockroach. The music actually became, in my mind, the sound of the, of the bugs coming and until finally they invade completely. <laughs> you hear it a little bit throughout the early part of it. You'll hear this 
this buzzing kind of noise. You're wondering where it's coming from. And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you'll see a buck. You'll see a roach, and he either goes after it or he kills it or whatever. And then it starts to happen more and more until finally they're coming from everywhere, and he can't stop them and control them. And then finally they they just come on mass, and uh, then the whole thing goes crazy. When it came time to write title music for the movie, George and I talked about it a lot in terms of what it should be. And I settled on this idea that because it was a kind of a comic book score, there should be something lyrical, almost seductive about the music, and uh, in a way almost childlike. And that was the genesis of the theme that you hear repeated and that is the opening title music, which I then reprised for the end title. But the difference was that I was able to find a way to incorporate different themes. If you listen carefully, you'll hear a piece of every one of the stories reprised in the end title music. The difference between the way I worked with George and the way I worked on the scores for my own films is that because I was involved in the production all the way through, I was writing almost while the movie was being made, which was a great thing to be able to do. And I was involved in post, uh, all through post. Unfortunately, in the world of today, most scores, and this is, this is even true going back some years, the composer is brought in really at the last minute and shown the movie and asked to write the music. It's a rare occasion that the composer and the director have a, an ability to collaborate prior to the movie actually being finished. I had that kind of relationship with George, which was beneficial to the movies, I think. I guess in that way, it's kind of hard to, to say which piece I like the best. There are parts of even uh, creeping up on you that I think are interesting sonically. The Crate would be the piece that's the most musically accomplished, although I think that the main and end title music is also, uh, I'm very proud of that. It's very original. It is my own style. The Crate, I was definitely aping a kind of classical style, uh, which I think was successful, but the main and end title is probably a little bit more original. There's a part of Tide You Over, which I think is very beautiful almost lush romantic theme that's being played over these two people who are buried up to their necks and are drowning <laughs> but uh, it's still very beautiful John's greatest talent is for creating emotionally heart-wrenching music as well as being able to create a feeling of light hope and mystery you know, shocks and stings are fine, but uh, it's more interesting and complex if the music 
is a bit of a contrast to what's going on the screen. As long as it's moving you emotionally, um, that's the most important point. You've been listening to John Harrison and the music of Creepshow. Thanks to Michelle DiBucci, Richard P. Rubenstein, Roy Donga, Sharif Hanza, Andy Rubb and Sean Roger. And most of all, thanks to Sean Park, who encouraged me to get to the end. I was helped by the research of Paul Gagney and Randall D. Larson. This was made by I.J. Wilson as part of the Halloween listening party on FOTW Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Halloween Listening Party. We'll be back next October with our live radio stream on the HalloweenListeningParty.com. See you all then.